Hello and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. A topic like structural racism may seem abstract, but nothing brings it to life like looking at a specific neighborhood in a specific city and coming to understand how decades of policy created segregated neighborhoods, which are the precursors for the health inequities that we observe today. In today's episode of A Health Policy, I'm speaking with Kiera Barnett, Senior Research Scientist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Dr. Barnett and co-authors published a paper in the February 2024 issue of Health Affairs, which focuses entirely on housing and health. Their paper explores the ongoing health effects of discriminatory housing policies in Linden, a neighborhood in Columbus, Ohio. I'm confident that our conversation will provide you with insights not only into the relationship between housing and health, but the relationship between housing, housing policy, and health. Dr. Barnett, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm so pleased that you wrote this piece for us because, as I said in the introduction, we use terms like structural racism and we know what they mean intellectually, but I think actually walking through the history of Linden gives us an understanding of those concepts in a completely different way. I would just ask you to start, if you could describe the neighborhood of Linden and a little bit about its evolution literally over like the last hundred years. Yeah, absolutely. So Linden is a community that's about six square miles in the northeast of Columbus, Ohio. When it was founded in 1908, it was a suburb. So it's called Linden Heights. Um, And it was annexed into the city in, in 1921. And historically, Linden has been a predominantly white community. So we first have census data in 1940, and it was 96% white. Over the decades, we now see that Linden is 63% Black uh, to date. We've also seen a lot of shifts in housing vacancies, for example, uh, in the community over time. So when we first, again, was able to collect data in the 1940s, it had a 1%, maybe 2% uh, vacancy rates. And that's much higher today at about 4%. When we look at Linden, we also see high rates of infant mortality. We see high crime rates. But I think it's really important to point out that even in these disparities that we see in Linden, there also is a lot of good, a lot of assets in Linden, like any other neighborhood that has its challenges. There's also a lot of good. There's a lot of community cohesion in that neighborhood, a lot of community organizing and organizations that have been doing a lot of work. But we haven't yet seen the improvement that we want to see in some of those health outcomes like infant mortality. It's kind of where we are with this, this work of trying to rethink and, you know, how do we see the outcomes that we know the community deserves? So that brings to uh, my next question, which is, it seems that infant mortality was the sort of health topic that led to such a t- close focus on the history and a better future for Linden. Can you talk about what prompted the work that you describe in the paper? This piece in this paper is a part of a larger project that is led by Dr. Dina Chisholm here at Nationwide Children's Hospital. That work is called the Targeted Investment and Meaningful Engagement Study. In that, we're really trying to understand how community development can improve health outcomes, particularly infant mortality. So we focus on infant mortality here in Central Ohio or Columbus, Ohio. We see large disparities in infant mortality, same as we see nationally. In the Linden community, we see infant mortality rates that are about 18 deaths per 1,000 live births. That's much higher than what we see in the county overall. The overall infant mortality in the county most recently is 7.5. 
So huge disparities in Black infant mortality in the London neighborhood in comparison. We are inspired by that to try to figure out what what can we do that might be a little bit differently than some of the, the efforts before. So Linden was recognized way back in 2014 by our community partner Celebrate One, and they're an initiative that is really focused on addressing the racial disparities in infant mortality here in Columbus, Ohio. Linden was recognized as one of eight neighborhoods in Columbus where we needed to really focus our interventions and attention. This work that we're doing is really kind of building off of the work that's already been done in the community or that is being done in the community, but really trying to bring in this lens of let's understand the history of Linden and how understanding that history can hopefully help to improve our efforts to improve infant mortality and other health outcomes. That's really what stands out to me is the uh, contextualization here that so often we're such a forward-looking country. We want everything to be better. It's easy to forget how uh, the long legacy of historical practices can't be reversed overnight, and they certainly can't be reversed if we don't know what they are. So part of what you've done in the paper is provide literally about 100 years, going back, I should say, 100 years, of policies that were racist. They had explicit intentions designed to affect the racial composition of the neighborhood. I won't ask you to go through all of them, but maybe if you could pick one that goes pretty far back and just give our listeners a sense of what the decision makers at the time, what the policymakers at the time were doing. I'm going to give you one and a half. Okay, I'll do that. The half is redlining because I think it's one that we hear all the time spoken about when we think about historical racist policies that have impacted communities. For the listeners who haven't heard, redlining is essentially when the homeowners loan corporation came into neighborhoods in the 1930s and 40s and kind of raided neighborhoods that was based on racial composition and decided if they were risky for lending purposes. And if you were a neighborhood that was predominantly black or brown or Irish at the time, you were what we call red line, which means you were ineligible. And so that's one that we hear a lot, but that is kind of like the start or the trickle effect of all these other policies that came in the decades after. And so that's the half. The, the full would be, you know, something like highway construction. So we know as we saw white flight, so this is a urbanization of our communities um, into the outskirts of not only Columbus, we saw this happening at a national level. We had to figure out a way of, well, how do we get those who are living in the suburbs back to downtown to get to work? So now we have highways being constructed throughout our cities across the U.S. And what we have learned in this process and others is that a lot of that highway construction went through those red line communities. So we constructed our highways and we made sure that we didn't touch those areas that received those A and B gradings. We, in turn, disrupted our red line communities in the process. And a lot of times in like London, it created this physical barrier that separates our brown and black and low income communities from the more affluent communities. Well, it's such a good example. And I'm I don't want to say I'm glad you picked it because I'm sorry about the policy's existence, but I'm glad you picked it because it is such a, an exemplar of the intertwined nature of policy. Redlining is a housing finance policy, but highway construction was a transportation policy, and it had huge implications for housing um, and housing stability, housing affordability, and, of course, the living conditions for the population, the uh, separation of communities that you described. So it's a, it is a, a really excellent example of the kinds of policies that, that have a long-lasting effect. Now, you mentioned white flight. I do think a central part of the story, again, for most American cities 
is school desegregation leading to white flight, which exacerbated some of these trends. So that's also mentioned in your paper. I wonder if you could say a little bit about how that played out in Columbus. In Columbus, we had a little bit of a battle. So there is a book called Getting Around Brown that talks about the ways after Brown versus Board of Education, the ways in which our school system, specifically in Columbus for that book, but everywhere again, really tried to kind of get around ways which we didn't have to, we could maintain segregation within our schools. So here in Columbus, we saw a large amount of white flight as school desegregation was happening in the 70s. In one academic year alone, we saw a decrease of almost 50% of white students in Lyndon McKinley High School. That's a, a really good example in one school year, right? So a mass exodus of, of a white population from the community as they're seeing more black students come into the area. The impact of that, you know, as we have more folks leaving the community, we're going to have potentially more vacant properties within the community. And that could have effects on things like property values. It has impacts on the taxes of a community. And we know our community level taxes are what fund our school systems. So now you have this long-term impact of schools not necessarily receiving the funding that they need as we have a a large number of the population leaving. And that can have, you know, impacts on education attainment long-term and then the financial stability of a community moving forward. So it has the potential to have much longer impacts down the line. So it strikes me about the example you chose of highway development And the school topic we've just been discussing is that the implications of these policies, even though they are decades, many decades ago, they're lasting. Obviously, I mean, highway infrastructure lasts for many decades. This policy, although it was designed to preserve segregated education, similarly has lasting effects on property values, community structure, vacancies, and then the resources available to solve problems as they arise. And so the long tentacles of these historical policies really come through in the work you did. The last historical policy I just want to review with you is one that probably closer in memory for many of our listeners, which is the subprime lending crisis. And again, I think many people think of it as, wow, that was a horrible thing. A lot of people lost a lot of money on their houses. But you really situate that as central among recent events. What effects did the subprime lending crisis have on Lyndon? So the data shows that in Linden, nearly 50% of all home loans that were made in that community were subprime loans. And so as we saw the crisis that happened in 2008, we saw a lot of folks in the Linden area lose their homes. And we saw an increase in vacancy rates. So where we only had about 11% vacancy rates in 2000, in 2016, there was 22%. Again, when we think about you know, what does vacant homes, again, do to the community? And it's not even just a story of vacancies can reduce home values. It could also reduce, like, community cohesion. It can reduce the pride that you feel in where you come from. So it can have a lot of different effects on the residents of that community. And historically, Linden had been a community that had a strong population of homeowners within the neighborhood. And so some of that was really lost during that crisis. And again, when we think about, you know, this whole issue of the importance of housing and health, you know, we know that having stable and affordable housing is really important to a lot of health outcomes, not even just infant mortality. And so when you destabilize a community in that way, you know, you destabilize some of that that health uh, and wealth within that community as well. And that's going to have long-term effects. 
So we've been talking a lot about housing and housing policy, although we've also talked transportation policy and education policy. Uh, and people who read health affairs might be wondering, okay, you know, where's the health in all of this? So I want to sort of pivot now that we've done some of this stage setting that I think is so important, but I want to pivot back to the topic of health. And as you noted earlier in our discussion, this project arises out of a health-focused initiative designed to address uh, the health needs of the community. As we turn our attention more to the health dimensions of your work, I want to try to understand why it is so important to get your arms around this history and to describe this history if you're trying to address health need in a community. That's the question I'm going to start off with uh, after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Kiara Barnett about the history of discriminatory policies related to housing and how they've played out with respect primarily to infant mortality in Columbus, Ohio, and the community of Linden. We've spent a lot of time talking about policies that aren't what you would think of as traditional health policies, but you come at this issue trying to address a health problem. My question to you is, why look at all this history? What helps you solve a health problem by understanding transportation policy from 70 years ago? We have to take this health and all policy lens to the work that we do because, yes, it sounds really weird to talk about transportation and its impact on health, but we know that, that it does. Like We have so much empirical studies that show us that it matters. But then to the second part of your question, well, why do we care about the history, right? So why, why are we talking about something that happened 70 years ago? And I would say to that, that we also have a lot of empirical studies that show us that history is correlated to the health outcomes that we see today. When we think about this work that we're doing, we're asking the question, does this history matter in the context of trying to do better by these communities today? And the answer is we're studying it. And that's a part of the, like, the science of the, doing the work is trying to figure out if the answer is yes or no. So we're in the process of doing that now. But I think that what we want to understand is, or the question that we're asking is, you know, how does including that history inform the approaches that we take? Does knowing that history mean that we still end up with the same interventions? Or does something about that history tell us that we need to shift the interventions that we do? And making that shift, does it impact the outcomes we see? not only from a social needs or social determinist perspective on outcomes that shift from the investment that we make, but from a health perspective, do we see a shift in health outcomes and health inequities within a community based on making that shift? So the investment in the work that we've done here at Nationwide Children's Hospital into communities, we already target communities based on health disparities and based on them being predominantly minority communities where we know the disparities exist. So we kind of have that step uh, in our process of targeting those communities specifically. What we're asking in this research is, okay, now we've targeted a community for some level of disparity, does understanding the history change the investment? And how do we do that? And what does that look like? And is it even useful? But that's, those are the questions that we're trying to answer in the work that we're doing. So I think that's a terrific question. I want to 
ask if you have another question or maybe a related question about that having to do with community engagement. So it seems to me that the story of so many community investment approaches is someone comes in from the outside or even maybe from the inside and says, this is what you need and we're here to help. And it does seem to me that starting with the history, there's a, a listening element to doing history. You, you don't know the history of the community without asking the people in the community what the history was. And it becomes a way to open the door that you aren't just sort of here to do what you think is right, but you're here to understand their own experience with the world. Is there a community engagement dimension of this that's different from sort of the the policy dimension of it? Yeah, no, absolutely. I will say that the work that's happening here in Columbus, and specifically at Nationwide Children, it does have that community engagement element into it. So with the investments that they're doing currently, they are engaging with communities because we're coming into communities, but there are community partners who have been doing this sort of work long before us. And when I say us in that context, I mean as a health institution. We as researchers are now coming in and saying, okay, we are doing the community engagement that is helping us contextualize what's happening now. But some of the community engagement we do may or may not include some of that history. So as a part of this research, what we're actually also doing, uh, we're kind of in the throes of, of data collection now, we're interviewing people who, specifically Black birthing people, who have lived in Linden since at least going back to 1970. And we're asking them stories about being pregnant and giving birth while living in Linden. What was the neighborhood like? How was your housing? What were you concerned about housing during your pregnancy? All the things we know are important. We're asking them about structural racism. How do they define it? How do we address it? We're, we're asking all of these questions from a historical perspective. We've interviewed folks who were pregnant in the 80s and the 90s, and we've interviewed someone who was pregnant in 2022. And that's important because I think it helps drive home the impact of these policies over time. So now we can say, okay, hey, this is, here's this timeline. Here's what was happening in the 90s. Here's this experience of the 90s, and so on and so on down the timeline. But that's important because it can help frame, again, what solutions we come up with. Because now we can see, well, as we did this in the past, here's what people were experiencing. That's kind of where we are hoping this work to go is to really show that we have to take into consideration that history in order to understand our present and to plan a better future. So that's so interesting. And that's actually exactly where I was hoping to take this conversation, which is, it is really important, I think, uh, to have this understanding of the history. And you have this policy inventory that's set forth in more detail in the paper than we can talk through here in this conversation. But there has to be a next, right? That's, that's the backward looking part. So what is the forward looking part? We are in the process of taking this history that we have in this paper, coupling it with the interviews that I just talked about, and engaging in some processes where we're going to have community members actually kind of work through and understand what's happened and then also help us kind of create solutions of what we can do next. Our goal with that is to take those pieces and then share them with folks that are actually doing the investment in the community. And again, we're asking a question of, is this even important and does it shift investment and does it shift outcomes? So a part of that process is now then doing qualitative interviews with, with folks after we shared it to say, okay, well, we shared this information. Was it useful to you? Did it change how you make decisions? And if so, in what ways? And if not, why not? So we're trying to answer those questions of like, is this 
the way to go. Similar to you, we think that history is really important. It's really key to, to help us be a guide in light of what we need to do. But we don't know yet if it's going to be useful in the eyes of the investors. And that's investors beyond us as an anchor institution. That's a part of this work is to now figure out how do we package it in a way that's understandable to different audiences, but then also just asking them, is this useful in the work that you're doing in communities? Uh, my head is sort of going in a few circles here as I try to follow. It seems like you really have two related but somewhat distinct areas of exploration here. I mean, on the one hand, you're motivated by poor health outcomes and high infant mortality, and you want to address that problem. But you're also aware that you're not the first people who've tried to address a problem like that. And a lot of people have tried without much success. And so you're also trying a different method for addressing the problem of engaging the community and identifying solutions and identifying the investments that would be helpful. And you're trying to figure out whether that different method gives you different suggestions for what to do and whether those different suggestions work. Did I get that about right? Yeah, basically. So, I mean, it, it is adding a layer of understanding structural racism and history to the investment strategies that have already been happening. And does adding that layer make a difference? That was much clearer than what I said. I, but that's great. That is the main kind of question in this process. And then, yeah, we definitely want to engage the community in every step. So again, it's interviewing them. It's engaging them in this group model building to help us identify what are the levers we might need to pull when it comes to policy. And then it's engaging the investors to say, all right, was this useful? Well, Dr. Barnett, this has been so interesting for me. And I don't pretend to know Lyndon, but I feel like I have an understanding of its history and its present that I certainly didn't have uh, when we began the conversation. And I'm, I just have tremendous respect for the effort you all have made to look at the layer upon layer of policies that got us to this place and not pretend that they don't continue to have an effect and to then listen to the people who live there and ask them what the implications of some of these policies have been and how their lives have changed. It's so interesting for me to hear you not just try to address the underlying health problem, but to address the question of what can lead to better policies and better investments. I appreciate you doing the work and explaining it to me and being my guest today on a health policy. Yeah, thank you so much. I would encourage the listeners to check out our paper and also want to take this moment to acknowledge my co-authors. This work could not have been done without them. So Dr. Jason Rees, Brittany Mosley, Nikki Young Beck, Ayaz Heider, Kelly Kelleher, Chanita C. Jefferson, and the PI on our project, uh, Dina Chisholm. So it's a great team. It's an interdisciplinary team. And I think that that's what's made this project fun. And hopefully that's going to make the outcomes useful. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy.